1: Listen in to discover how God is working in their church plant. Hey, Church Planner, this is Pete Mitchell. And this is Peyton Jones. And you're here for the ever-popular Hardcore Church Planting Podcast. And uh, Peyton, as always, why don't you introduce our guest? So it's a real honor today to have our
0: guest. Uh, He, in some ways, needs no introduction, but... Uh, His name is Todd Wilson, and he is the founder and director of the Exponential Conference, which uh, really is Lollapalooza for church planners all around the world. He's also the author of the book, More, Find Your Personal Calling and Live Life to the Fullest Measure. Todd, welcome onto the podcast.
2: Hey, it's great to be here, guys.
0: Good to have you. Thank you for everything that you do for church planners and the world of church planning in general.
2: Well, I uh, just am really passionate about church planters and the, the mission that they have and the things they do, and I uh, love supporting them.
1: Awesome. Well, Todd, one of the things that we always like to start off our podcast with is uh, for all of our audience who may not be as familiar with you and what you've done, if you could tell us your story of how you came to faith and how you got involved with church planting.
2: I'll try to give you the short version. I uh, I grew up in a family that was friendly to Christianity, but uh, I I did not grow up a Christian. Uh, I was always a very driven person. I knew from the age of 13 what I wanted to do with my life. I uh, was one of those weird people that knew I wanted to be a nuclear engineer by the time I was 13. Uh, And I went off to school and uh, got a degree in nuclear engineering, Uh, met my wife during college. Uh, We dated all through college, got married the week after we graduated, and uh, so we had uh, double income, uh, making good money out doing good things, loved the job I had, uh, worked at a place called Naval Reactors, uh, which is one of the premier engineering organizations in the world, sort of the the founder of nuclear power in the Navy was Admiral Rickover, uh, it was that organization. Uh, the day that I showed up at Naval Reactors, uh, 22 years old, a guy named Troy McMahon. Uh, Troy is now on staff with Dave. Or, well, he's planted a church in Kansas City now, that, uh, but was on staff with Dave Ferguson in Chicago, who I work with at Exponential. Uh, Troy and I were both engineers, showed up at the nuclear Navy together the first day, and about six months after we were there, we had to go off to graduate school. Our wives stayed in Washington D.C. while we went up to Pittsburgh to graduate school, and and literally every weekend for six months, uh, the we would commute back and forth from Pennsylvania to Washington D.C. It was about a four-hour car ride, and uh, the car ride went the same way every week. We'd we'd be about uh, halfway back from Pittsburgh to Washington, and it'd be a Friday night, and Troy McMahon would say to me, he'd start talking about Jesus, and he'd say, why don't you come to church with me on Sunday? And uh, I finally got so fed up hearing about it that I finally said to Troy, if you'll stop talking about Jesus, uh, when we move back to D.C., we'll we'll, uh, come visit church. And uh, that happened. Once we got back, uh, Troy... Took us to church and within a couple of months we gave our lives to christ and that was at uh, at about age 23. um was very driven at the time we uh both had good jobs my wife and i uh, i promoted far too quickly in the nuclear navy and by the time i was 29 uh was was at an, one of our nuclear shipyards in a in a position overseeing a whole lot of people uh it was both good and bad i i You know, learned a lifetime's worth of leadership and management things in a couple of years. And I think it took some years off my life, uh, the responsibility I had at a young age. But by the time I was uh, 33, 34, really started kind of having an early halftime thinking, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And uh, ended up deciding to leave and start a company. And before that could happen, uh, I got transferred back to Washington, D.C., And uh, when that happened, the senior pastor at the church that I'm at now really started a two-year journey of talking to me about going into full-time ministry. Now, the church I'm at now, New Life Christian Church, is a very strong church-planting church. Um, At the time Brett started talking to me about 18 years ago, uh, New Life had just started, uh, was founded to be a church-planting church, uh, was just about to do their first church plant when they were about three years old. And so Brett Andrews started talking to me about why don't you come into ministry and help us figure out this church planting thing. Uh, for me, it made no sense at all. I had no degree in, uh, you know, no seminary degree, no Bible college degree. I'm an engineer. Uh, literally, had no desire to be in ministry. But for about two years, uh, really kind of fought that, fought that. Ended up going into full time ministry, and uh, because I came on staff at a church planting church was quickly exposed to church planting. Now, this was in uh, around 1999, and very early on in that journey, uh, the church that I was on staff at decided we would try multi-site. and There were very few multi-site churches at the time, Um, and so I had to look around trying to figure out how to do multi-site. You couldn't go to a conference or read her book or yeah, really not very many people you could talk to, so the only thing I could do to figure it out was look at church planting. So I, in 1999, consumed every book I could. I talked to every leader I could. I wasn't afraid to call pastors who had started churches, really just doing what a good engineer would do, which is figure out how to do this church planting thing. Um, we ended up putting a strategy in place that you know took us initially from about one church plant every three years to one a year to Uh, multiple a year. And now the the church that I'm part of is now planted over about 120 churches at this point. Wow.
0: That's, that's impressive. Wow. That, that, that could be a whole series of questions right there. How did, uh, how did you kind of get involved with starting exponential? I mean, that, that's a story that needs to be told.
2: Well, it's, it's interesting. Um, When I first came into ministry, I, I, my title was an executive pastor, which meant I did anything that the senior pastor didn't want to do. And, uh, but the one thing our senior pastor knew he wanted to do was for us to be a church planting church. And, uh, we had to actually figure out even what that meant and how to do that, um, my first role was overseeing this multi-site thing that we were, you know, we were going to try to get started. And we saw multi-site initially as church planting. Um, ended up that our campus pastor, about a month before we opened the doors, we had already put out the the series of marketing campaigns. We had built the big launch team. We're anticipating this huge launch on this multi-site and our campus pastor quits about a month before opening day. And so that put me sort of in the role of functionally having to be the campus pastor. And in the process of doing that, really initially got uh, drawn into the marketing side. We were doing so much marketing. We were a portable church. We didn't have our own building. And as an engineer, I started looking at, at how much money we were spending on marketing. And it really was kind of sickening. And the more you'd look at it, we, we were wasting money on mailing lists. We were wasting money on the postage. I mean, we were getting taken advantage of at about every turn on the marketing. And so I took a blank piece of paper and said, boy, what what is the cheapest way we could do this? Well, if we bought our own labeling equipment and if we became a wholesaler of mail lists and if we uh, – Built partnerships with printers. We could tag our cards onto the end of print runs. Um, out of that uh, grew uh, a nonprofit marketing company. We actually started a nonprofit marketing company uh, that did full service marketing for churches, including our own. And uh, in the process of doing that marketing company, I worked in the first six months with probably 10 to 12 church planners. And these were church planters that were really well funded. Um, they were doing big marketing campaigns, and I got to tell you guys, it it was sickening. I uh, I was almost like the coach to most of these church planters. They'd call me, you know, here I am trying to run a marketing company while I'm an executive pastor, and these planters would call me with all kinds of questions about everything except marketing, and mm. and so I'm I'm essentially coaching some of these guys without officially being their coach. But here's what happened. About a month to two before their opening day, each of the planters had to give us the content for their direct mail cards. You know, the normal stuff you'd put on a web address and phone numbers. And, and these are well-supported church planters. I mean, they've, they've actually got the money to do the marketing. And, and I kid you not, half of these planters didn't yet have a website. And so they are, they're about to spend 20,000 plus dollars on a marketing campaign. Imagine sending out three or four postcards, 20, 25, 30,000 people each, and sending out postcards that don't have a web address on them. And that, that caused me, just from a stewardship standpoint, to start asking the question, if you don't have a website and you're one to two months before your opening day, what the heck are you working on if you don't have a website? And so I, I surveyed the 12 planters I was working with at the time and said, tell me the top three issues you're working on right now. Uh, three most important things you're doing or the three things that are taking most of your time. And I kid you not, I got I got a list of things back from all 12 planters. None of the things on the list had to do with people. None of the things on their, their top list one to two months before opening day had to do with Discipling my launch team, building relationships, building the launch. Team. <laughs> Everything they gave me as their top issues one to two months before their opening day was articles of incorporation, bylaws, real estate signs. I mean, it, it's all of this administrative stuff that that really didn't have a whole lot to do with building relationships. Yep. And so, out of that, you know, now we've got this nonprofit marketing company. And so, out of that, we birthed uh, a nonprofit project management company where we would come alongside uh, church planners. You know, there's, as you know, there's 400 plus things you got to do to start a church. It's very comparable to building a new house. You know, the average house in America is a couple hundred thousand dollars. takes about nine months from the time you conceive it till you're moving in. You got to do these 400 things in a certain order. Well, here's the question: if starting a church in America is the equivalent of building a house. Would you ever hand a couple hundred thousand dollars over to a general contractor who didn't know what they were doing Mm. and had never done it before? And so this project management company that we started, the whole idea was of those 400 things you've got to do to start a church, um, at least 200 to 250 of them are things that somebody other than the planter could do. So we started this project management service that would help a planter put their launch plan together and then would manage and do as many of the actions as they could. Um, That ministry grew fairly rapidly. We were doing all of uh, Stadia's church plants, a number of Orchard Group's church plants. The, The ministry was expanding and it quickly went to like three staff people. Each staff person could manage about 12 church plants a year. And so you've got this tiger by the tail with this thing growing fairly quickly. And this is on top of a marketing company now. So there's the marketing company, there's this project management company. And um, right at that point in time, several key leaders, Bob Logan um, and a handful of others saw what we were doing and said, Todd, do you have the infrastructure in place? This is going to really take off. Everybody's going to want this. Are you ready for, for what's going to happen? And my answer was no, we, we don't, don't have, have infrastructure in place. And so I told our team that we would, uh, I, I was going to slow down for a year. I wouldn't keep adding new ministries and new things. We'd, we'd spend a year to catch up on infrastructure and that I was going to spend the year networking. I was going to network with as many church uh, planting leaders as I could, figure out what the needs were, and uh, found myself about a week later. Amidst a group of people from the independent Christian churches that had been running this thing called the National New Church Conference, it was about 35 years old, and they were having a conversation about whether they really ought to try to put the word, you know, live out the national in the title National New Church Conference and make it national, or whether maybe they ought to back off and and shut down. And you know, being somewhat entrepreneurial and opportunistic, I in my mind thought, okay, I've got a church business card, I've got a marketing card, I've got a project management card, and now I want to network. What better card could I carry than the director of the National New Church Conference? I could like talk to any church planning leader in the country if I wanted to. And so honestly and candidly, it was a bit opportunistic to say, I'll, I'll run this thing for a year. Um, I'm not a stage person, and so uh, don't like to be on the stage. Dave Ferguson, who's, uh, you know, one of the top multiplying leaders in the country, as far as I'm concerned, Dave said, Hey, if Todd will run it, I'll be the face person, kind of like Andy Stanley is with catalyst. And so, uh, we've been kind of doing it ever since for about 11 years. Sorry for the long winded answer, but, uh,
0: no, it's all right. You know, in fact, um, I think Pete might have fallen in love with you at the point at which you started talking about, uh, you know, taking this marketing by the tail and and starting something up. Right, Pete? Did I hear a little love coming out of
1: you? Oh, you heard something.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, you know, it's really cool because, um, it ties in exactly to what your new book more is really about the subtitles, find your personal calling and live to the fullest measure. Um, tell us a little bit, um, about why, you felt this book needed to be written and, and what the central message is.
2: Sure. Um, I think if we, you know, there, there, I've been in ministry now for about uh, 17 years and have just through exponential. have seen a lot of different conversations. There's, there's seasons of time, you know, missional has been really big for a season and we're sort of in this discipleship window. Now evangelism has been big. You get a lot of different topics, and I, I am both convicted by and burdened by uh, the idea that in the, way, the prevailing operating system of church, sort of the come and see, which is not a bad thing, but the come and see and sort of the accumulate, catch and consume mindset is not going to get us where we need to be. I, I think elements of, of the different things out there with missional and disciple making and other things are all on the right topic, but this issue of how do we mobilize people on their calling? Um, I think what for me, one of the best statements of mission for the church is in the in the first chapter of Ephesians, if I can paraphrase, it basically says that the church, us, are to be the fullness of Jesus into every crack and cranny of society. Mm. And when I think about that idea of filling every crack and cranny of something, it's it's hard to come up with examples. Air in a room, mm water in a tank but what I do know is that a catch and consume church is not going to fill every crack and cranny of society and so the idea of how do we turn that around and how do we deploy people how do we get people functioning you know within the unique sweet spot of calling that they have uh, is really going to be the answer into the future for us so I that's the season for me in the future I'm just convicted by the idea that everyone has the sweet spot of calling—that we have a role, mm. we have a role to play in in being the fullness of Jesus into every crack and cranny of society—you know—I I think the church is God's plan A, but I also oh. think the idea of mobilizing people beyond the walls of the church is uh, is where it's going to be. So that's that's sort of the, what
0: brought us to the book on calling. What I really liked about this book was you kind of had- you you value the journey, so you start off. One one of the things that really struck me is you you're an illustrator. You illustrate, um, and you talked about the part in chapter one with the Grand Tetons, and I just want to quote that because you you know perhaps you could tell us a little bit about um, what happened uh, leading up to this. But I like your point here. Um, you said, the more quickly we embrace the truth that God cares more about our blind steps of faith and surrender than he does about our clarity and comfort, the sooner we will be positioned to more fully understand the story that God has written in our lives. I found that very powerful, and I think that's definitely the journey that we as church planners take, even though I know this book would would apply to everybody, not just church planners. But that seems to be very much like how most of us find our calling. It it becomes this journey uh, with God. Um, tell us a little bit how God's purposes align with our purposes.
2: Well, uh, the context of where that came for me in, in my life at that time was, you know, we have these seasons where sometimes we can just sense there's something new coming. There's, you know, there's going to be some transition for us in the future. And I had been in a season where, you know, by all accounts, lots of things were going well, but I could just sense that there was something new on the horizon coming. And, you know, I think in our impatience, we can really get frustrated sometimes when we're, you know, we're either not feeling like God's given us something quickly enough or, or not. And, uh, I I went with two friends. I had never been out to uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming and where the Grand Teton Mountains are. And uh, two of my friends, uh, we uh, had a mutual friend then who owned just a large, beautiful place, 12,000 square foot place, looking out over the Grand Teton Mountains. And I had never been there. And uh, I was looking forward to it, thought, man, what a great opportunity to get away, maybe get some clarity on what this next season is. and these two friends of mine that had been there said, now be sure that you get a, a seat on the right hand side of the plane, you know, so you can see the mountains when you come in. And so I did, I got a seat on the right side of the plane. And, and, you know, we kind of laughed when we landed that, uh, you know, at 10 30 at night, it doesn't matter what side of the plane you get a seat on. I couldn't see anything out the, out the window. And so these guys assured me it. 1030 at night that oh wait till you wake up tomorrow morning the view you're going to see from your bed when you wake up is going to be the most beautiful thing you've ever seen um woke up the next morning and i kid you not fog was all the way to the window like you you could not see 10 feet out the window of this house and for the next oh well here's what's more terrible I've been to a 12,000-square-foot vacation home that oversees the Grand Teton Mountains, and to this day, I have not seen the Grand Teton Mountains. Um, when, for, for a day and a half, it never cleared. All it was was fog. And so that became the metaphor for me, this idea that, that the fact that there was fog between me and these Grand Teton Mountains mm. did not change the truth of the beauty of those mountains behind that fog. And so the idea that God has purposes, and those purposes are true and they're there, regardless of the fog that gets in the way between us and them, and then separately that he gives us a role in connecting to those purposes, it's a truth that we can take to the bank. And the the only question becomes, what do we do about the fog that's between us and God's purposes? And I and and I think uh, you know there's two kinds of fog. If you just use the metaphor to your car, sometimes you get in your car and you start driving, and there's all kinds of fog on the inside the window. You can't see until you clear the fog off the inside. Um, that that's the stuff that's internal to us. It's just the mess we need to deal with that we've got to get out of the way so we can see, and we have some amount of control over that internal fog. But then there's external fog. There's fog between our car window and 30 feet in front of the road that we can't do anything about the fog. And I think sometimes God allows that external fog to be there, um, if for nothing else, because he cares more about our steps of faith to move forward when we can't see. And I know that's been the story of my journey. When I was coming out of the marketplace, I loved what I was doing. I had 15 years in the nuclear Navy Um, I did not want to leave there. And then ultimately I wanted to start a company that I really wanted to do. I didn't want to go into ministry. And part of the deal for me was I, I wanted a job description. I wanted to see how there was a promotion thing. Well, think about this. I never wanted to be a senior pastor and then I'm going to take a job as an executive pastor. There's absolutely no upward mobility there. Like what in the world is that about? Um, Mm. so I had about two years of complete fog but I could not make sense. It makes no sense. Why would I step out of what I'm doing to go into ministry now in God's humor? Uh, what happened when I went into ministry was this entrepreneurial switch went off and I told you about two of about 10 different entrepreneurial journeys for me. There was a marketing company, there was a project management company, but there were about eight other things. And I mm. think about this. I wanted to go start a company in the marketplace God shut that door, drew me into ministry where I saw no upward mobility, a significantly lower paycheck, and all kinds of confusion. And now what plays out is this entrepreneurial switch goes off that I'm like a serial entrepreneur in ministry. And here's the truth, Peyton. If God would have taken the fog away before I was going into ministry, if he would have shown me the path that was ahead of me, when i that's what I wanted, take the fog away. If he would have, I would have been scared to death to move forward because I wouldn't have believed that I was going to be doing the stuff in ministry that I'm getting to do. So I, I, I think that God lets the fog be there sometimes because he cares more about those steps of faith than he does the specifics of what we do.
0: I 100% agree with that. And it has been my experience. I think a lot of our church planners are kind of looking at that. And you mentioned one of the things you mentioned, probably my absolute favorite part of the book and you referenced it earlier, it was when you're sitting uh, at 13 years old in your class and the teacher talks about, you know, uh, this stuff you, you say, um, how he, he he drew an atom on the board and, you know, it just fascinates. You're like, no one's seen one, but we can study it. I think that's like part of You know, what I, that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. And the point you're making at that stage is one of the tips to finding your sweet spot, your unique calling. You give a, a few different tips that I found helpful, but that one you mentioned, go back and read your, your, your life. Like it was a story, like God is unpacking or telling a story with your life. And I guess that's kind of like, that's how life is, right? One, one man said, it's like Hebrew letters, you can only read it backwards, you know. You can read back and trace God's providence, but I found that helpful for guys to look back now and trace how God's wired them, how He's designed them, their experiences. I remember going into ministry myself and having been a a, a nurse, a, a, a waiter, you know. And then as years went on, we were talking earlier about being a firefighter. There's there are parallels to everything I've ever done to what God has ultimately called me to do in church planning. And so I found that very, very powerful. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how somebody finds their sweet spot? You, you break it down into the be, do, and go. Um, can you break those down a little bit for our listeners?
2: Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, in nature, a sweet spot, the idea of sweet spot, and there's thousands of them in nature, Um, guns have sweet spots, rooms have acoustic sweet spots, baseball bats have sweet spots, your glasses have sweet spots. Um, Every sweet spot has three common elements, a design, a purpose, and a position. And I think those coincide with the three questions that men and women have asked forever. Who am I created to be? What am I made to do? And where am I supposed to do it? And I I know in my own life and in, in the lives of so many people that I see around me, um, the pioneering spirit of America, the pioneering spirit of Westerners, um, we are all about the doing, we jump right to the do. When you think about raising kids, um, we focus our kids on what they're going to do. If they're really good at sports, we get them into more sports. If they're really good at, uh, at music things, we get them into music. And when we get ready to send them off to college, we say, Hey, we're getting ready to spend a lot of money on you. You, you better figure out what you're going to do. Cause we're going to spend a lot of money on you. And they spend four years getting good at, you know, better at doing something. And then what's the next issue? Where am I going to do it? They're coming out of college and they got to figure out the where, um, what we are not doing well is teaching our kids and helping our kids. And, and this, this is both families and the church. We're not focused on the be part. Who am I created to be? What are the unique elements of, of, of who I am and my uniqueness? Um, Some people get the benefit of lining up in a job that lines up who they're created to be with what they're made to do. But I would suggest to you that most midlife crises and sort of halftime experiences that people in life have, they wake up somewhere in their late 30s and their 40s wondering, is this all there is? Is this what I'm supposed to do with the rest of my life? I know for me, that was the case. The discontent I started having in the early 30s was that what I was doing was not consistent with who I was made to be, and here's what's weird in that. I loved doing what I was doing. I had a great job, but it just did not line up with who God created me to be, and so here's here's what I would say specifically on making the distinction of be. We can go back and look at the story of our lives and how God's written a, you know, a storyline into our life. In my particular case, I wanted to be an architect until until I was 13, until that day I was sitting in class that you're talking about. And what's really weird is why in the world would a kid who can't draw want to be an architect? I, I, I couldn't draw and I wanted to be an architect. I couldn't even tell you why I wanted to be an architect. OK, then at age 13, I see a teacher drawing an atom on the board and I'm mesmerized. How in the world can somebody know so much about something they've never seen, to the point they can draw a picture of something they've never seen? And I went home that day and said, I want to be an enge- I want to be a nuclear engineer." Well, fast forward to today, I can now look back and I can tell you, the person that I am created to be is someone who, who does what's called envisaging opportunity, creating an image or a picture, of future possibility with a strategy to get there. If you go back and think architect, what does an architect do? They take a blank piece of paper and they create a picture and image of some future possibility for somebody. What did that teacher do? They drew a picture of something with possibility of something they had never seen. Both of those things, what, what I felt like I wanted to do We're we're giving insights into and tapping into who I was created to be, but subtly, doing engineering or doing architecture is different than, than what brings me to life in the being part of it. If you fast forward to just my passion in the church planting space and why I have an affinity to everything church planting, go back to who I'm created to be. Helping people create an image or a picture of a future possibility and a strategy to get there. Well, look what church planters have to do, especially church planters maneuvering the landscape today of all the different models and approaches and different things. So, my my primary advice to people, you know, kind of pressing into the detail on this, guys, is. Um, We want to jump to the where am I going to do something and what am I going to do? What we really need to do is spend the time and the hard work figuring out who we're uniquely created to be. Because when we understand the uniqueness of who we're created to be, the what we're supposed to do and where we're supposed to do it will all fall in line.
0: The book is called More, and you can go to the site www.more-book.com. And you'll also find some resources there. Um, there's a flip flip book summary. Um, you can also catch, uh, Todd, you have a personal calling podcast right. where you kind of go into this, uh, you know, on a regular basis and guys, you can go to toddwilson.org and you can kind of catch up with Todd and all the things he's doing. Uh, probably the most connected man in the world of church planning right now. So it's worth doing that. And you can also visit personalcalling.org. So this is really a passion of yours, Todd. So thanks for uh, sharing this with us and especially for our church planners. And uh, guys out there, church planners, you know, th- this book is not just for you. I mean, it it applies to you in a big way as church planners and knowing Todd's passion for church planning, but at the same time, um, hardwired into this, he mentions Ephesians four with the five roles there, and really the goal of that passage is the embodying of the entire body of Christ. So, and that's something that that this book will also do. So, uh, if you got people in your in your church plant where you're like, man, I'd love to see them get activated and unleashed in not just the potential, but what they calling is. You you draw a heavy distinction, Todd, between not reaching your potential, but really fulfilling your calling. And there's a big difference. Some guys just, I'm just going to reach my potential, but maybe they've abandoned calling. And so I, I, I like the distinctions you make there. And guys, you can catch up uh, with all those things on those resources I gave. Again, that's toddwilson.org, personalcalling.org, and more-book.com.
1: One last thing, Todd, that we always like to ask whenever we do uh, a podcast, and uh, for you, we had to think long and hard about uh, this question. But here it is for you: If did you... did you
2: say the podcast is over now? I'm not sure. I want. Oh, no. oh no!
1: Oh no! Oh <laughs> no! We're not done he yet. Knows what's coming? <laughs> we're not done yet. It's the question we've all been waiting for. If you were to get into a physical fist fight with Dave Ferguson, who would win?
2: Well, he would clearly win, and let me tell you why. Uh, he is a glasses half-full guy, so everything is always the positive. So no matter who won, he would convince the world that he won.
0: <laughs> Ooh, I like it. That is a fresh answer we have never heard before. Even if you beat dead Dave into the ground, he gets up thinking,
2: I won that. I showed yep. Todd. He would probably convince me that he won
0: even when he didn't. (laughs) That is awesome. But, you know, uh, somehow, somehow, I, I know your job was getting energy out of nuclear power, but I mean... Can you call something in? I mean, is there? Can you use? I mean, Todd, really? You kind of have a superpower. I mean, it's not every day that, that you need a thing. a guy who's like a nuclear engineer, right? You have to have something you can, you know, call down the 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 wrath of physics on him. Go radioactive on him or something, right? Ooh, I like that. You can use superpowers. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'll have to try that. <laughs>
0: right on. Hey, Todd, it's been awesome having you on. We greatly appreciate you and your ministry. And uh, with that, Arnold, sign us out. Remember, if you are called to church
1: planting, go hardcore or go home. You've been listening to Hardcore Church Planning. Hardcore Church Planning has been brought to you by the Church Planner Podcast and the Church Planner Magazine, which is available in the App Store for both Apple and Android devices. If you like this episode, leave us a positive review. If you didn't like this episode, we'll be happy to give you your money back.